So uh, this afternoon, I get to um, talk about liberty and the American experience. And there is a lot to say. So I, I may be speaking a little bit more quickly um, in this talk than I was in my first one. Um, it, it, it seems to me that one of the reasons I love history is you really get to see the high points and the low points of, of, of what, what's humanly possible. And, and you really do get to see um, such amazing examples of courage and heroism and self-sacrifice, as well as barbarism and depravity. And, uh, you know, Tom, Tom kind of takes the cake. When you could travel back through thousands and thousands of years, uh, the examples get uh, really, really incredible. I thought the 20th century was a barbarous uh, time period, and then I read um, Herodotus and Thucydides, and, you know, whoa, right? But American history um, definitely does uh, have its uh, examples um, of both liberty on the rise and liberty in various ways in retreat. And um, I want to begin by talking about um, sort of some of the foundations for American liberty, some of the ideas, some of the notions, some of the conditions that, that made you know, the, the soil um, of the United States per, perhaps especially uh, fertile and conducive to a, a self-governing people. And by self-governing, I mean not only did we collectively self-govern ourselves without interference from Great Britain, but, but to a really large extent, for, for at least people who were free, um, we were able to, to govern ourselves as individuals. Um, so this is, in many respects, a very free place. And the government that emerges from the American Revolution is a very free um, uh, uh, government and, and you know, leads to a very free nation. Um, but then we could see, before the ink is even really dry on the Constitution, people beginning to make decisions that would cause government to grow. Thomas Jefferson wrote that the, uh, the traditional order of things is for liberty to yield and for government to gain ground. At least in Jefferson's eyes, liberty and government were opposites, right? And the more you had of one, the less you had of the other. And, and the story of our history is, in, 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 in many respects, a story of the growth of, of government. So, so that's where I'm heading. My goal, for real, is to get to the present. Um, but with whom do I start? I start with John Adams. And uh, the year is 1766. And I want you to get a load of this, uh, this great quotation. He describes this thing as the most perfect combination of human powers and society which finite wisdom has yet contrived and reduced to practice for the preservation of liberty and the production of happiness. What is he referring to? He's referring to the Constitution. If you're good with dates, you know that John Adams in 1766 could not have been referring to the US Constitution, right? That's written in 1787. Which Constitution is he referring to? The British Constitution. Right? This collection of laws, this, this collection of principles um, that govern Great Britain. It was great to be British back then. It was, it was great to be British back in Britain. It was even greater to be British in America. Americans in the colonial period felt a, a great deal of pride about their Britishness. In their eyes, Britain was not only the uh, most powerful, not only the most prosperous, but also, and I think not coincidentally, the most free 
nation on the planet. And in 1766, maybe only a handful of Americans, you know, this, the year of the repeal of the Stamp Act, would ever imagine that 10 years down the road, they would be rising up to declare independence. What was it that made the British tradition such a great one? Um, in, in many respects, people like John Adams, people like Thomas Jefferson, people like uh, other members of the founding generation would, would point toward um, the principles that emerge from and, and rise from uh, Britain's glorious revolution of 1688. We have uh, James II, the, the uh, a monarch who doesn't play nicely with, with parliament, uh, who, who doesn't want to convene them, who doesn't want uh, to share power with them, being replaced in a relatively bloodless um, uprising by William and Mary, two monarchs who agree to uh, have limited powers, who agree that their principal purpose, the principal purpose of their government is to protect the liberty of the people. Now, uh, the British, of course, are, are perhaps, and I'm generalizing about people, you should never generalize. In class, whenever a student is, prefaces a comment with, this isn't sexist or anything, but I'm like, stop. <laughs> this isn't racist or anything, but stop. Well, I'm generalizing. I'm generalizing about the British, but I very much love the British. Um, and this, this could be taken as a compliment. And, 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 I, and I hope that if they heard this, they, they would take it in such a way. The British aren't the most revolutionary people in the world. They're, they're pretty orderly, aren't they? You know? And one of the things that the British are very good at is queuing, standing in line. <laughs> I couldn't help but know, I was over in England for, for a year and I couldn't help but marvel at like how advanced their like cues were. Um, in America, in America, this is, it's, it's chaos. I remember, you know, being a kid growing up in Connecticut, my, our, our local grocery store was Stop and Shop. I'd go to Stop and Shop with my mother. Um, you know, what line to get in? You never know which one's gonna turn out for the best. So my mom would split the difference. She'd get in one line, she'd have me get in another line. <laughs> If my line was going faster, she'd swing the cart over and join me. If her was going faster, she'd call me over to hers, right? But in Britain, so many of the, uh, the stores have these nice compound queues, right? Everyone gets in the same line, and then the next available uh, person will help you. It's sort of like that at Barnes & Noble, I suppose. Well, anyway, this, this is uh, an, an orderly place to have an, a revolution, to overthrow a monarch. That, that requires some, some explaining, right? And, and the man... Um, to whom we turn for the explanation of the glorious revolution, right, is none other than John Locke. Now, I needn't say all that much about John Locke um, because Tom mentioned him and Randy mentioned him as well. Um, but John Locke, of course, I mean, he's, he's uh, famous for a number of different things. Uh, you know, he's famous as one of the, the, the contributors to the fundamental orders of, of South Carolina, the, the Constitution uh, there. He's, he's famous as, uh, for his... Uh, you know, thoughts on ed education, his essay on human understanding, um, of course, for his two treatises on government, and he's famous for being an absolute dead ringer for the late great actress Jessica Tandy. <laughs> so, John Locke. Uh, So John Locke posits that before we even burden ourselves with this thing called government, right, way back when, um, people exist in a state of nature. You know, this is, this, is, uh, this is almost like, 
This is almost like the Outback Steakhouse phase of history. What was the slogan for Outback? Wasn't it no rules, just just right? So add a little S. No rules, just rights, right? (laughs) In the state of nature, we we have rights before government. They pre-exist government. They're, 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 they're a gift, Locke says, from God, or, or if you prefer, they're inherent in our humanity. And were we to be denied our rights, we wouldn't be able to, to uh, exist fully as human beings. In a state of nature, um, we know that, that God has designed us, or we know that we're designed to think for ourselves. Why? What are all people born with? A brain, right? We, we, we know that we're designed to be able to move about freely. You know, we have, we have legs. We know that we're designed with hands, with hands that can allow us to mix our labor in a state of nature with what we find around us to establish property rights in things. So in a state of nature, uh, if I uh, take, find a nice stone that kind of has a sharp edge to it and fashion it to a stick, I could create an ax. And with that ax, I could uh, fashion a, a weapon, a weapon like, say, a spear, um, to, to go hunting. And if I hunted an animal, the animal would become mine. Right? I could take that ax and I could chop down some trees and I could fashion for myself a cabin. Right? That cabin would become mine. I could clear a field right? if I wanted to plant uh, some, uh, you know, a small garden or something. That field would become mine because I had mixed my labor with it. I had improved it. I had established original ownership of it. Right? And what Locke is doing here is kind of commonsensical, right? It's not, it's not right for me to stand up upon a mountain and proclaim all the land around me, you know, rob land or something. I can't, I can't do that. That's not right. But if I, if I actually improve something, if I mix my labor with it, um, then it can become mine. Then I have property rights. So this is awesome, right? The state of nature, this is fantastic. I get up when I want to. I decide what I'm going to do during the day. It's all fantastic. I get to call all the shots. But there's one problem. There's just one really terrible, nettlesome problem. And that problem is Mark. (laughs) Mark! You want to stand up, Mark? (laughs) So I'm in trouble. Mark is a barbarian, all right? And uh, and he has a big club, right? And and he sees that I, I, I have... I have in the state of nature, um, you know, I, I wish I still had that barbecue from lunch. It was so good. Um, I've gone off and, you know, killed some boar and made some really great barbecue. And mm, you're hungry. Don't you want this barbecue? I always want barbecue. All right. And I don't want to give it to you. So, what, what, so what's going to happen? Um, Boom. <laughs> right? He clubs me over the head and he takes my barbecue sandwich. You know, he steals my property. Now, this is terrible, right? Um, it's horrible. Uh, and, and it could be worse. He could have kidnapped me. He could have enslaved me. He could have killed me. Um, so, so Locke says, what do we do, you know, in, in a state of nature? And thanks, Mark. You could sit down, you barbarian. Uh, <laughs> what do we do? You know, we have, we have perfect freedom, but we don't have, you know, the safety for our rights. We band together, right? So, you know, uh, if I had more time, I'd get volunteers from the audience and uh, we, would, we would go and we'd, we'd have a counterattack and we'd get my bar- barbecue sandwich back. And, you know, for, for your willingness to do that for me, to help protect my rights, I would pledge to help protect your rights. And, you know, we would probably have to live somewhat near one another if we were going to effectively be able to protect each other's rights. So, uh, you know, I probably would cease my somewhat nomadic ways and I'd, I'd expand my little garden into a farm and pick up the plow and 
uh, we've moved, we'd move into a, a more agricultural sort of arrangement. Um, and, and, and all would be well until maybe a couple generations pass, you know, and, and one of our descendants uh, decides to, uh, to rise up. And uh, the particular descendant who has decided to rise up and proclaim himself our emperor is a guy named Craig the Fourth. Craig, will you want to stand up? Now, this man, he may, he may look all nice and kindly, but he's a tyrant. And, and he takes away, he doesn't protect our rights. That's what Locke says is the purpose of government. He doesn't protect our rights, all right? He, he, he habitually and, and continuously, um, through repeated abuses and usurpations, I don't know where I've heard that phrase. To reduce us under absolute despotism. He takes away our rights. So what does Locke say we have the right to do? No, no. Remember, 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 remember. Locke, Locke is British. He's very orderly. Put him to the back of the line. <laughs> Locke says we have the right to petition. We have the right to complain, right? We have the right to say, Craig IV, um, please stop injuring our rights. And then, and then you could decide to, com- to comply and do your job as a, as a good king and, and protect our rights. But if you don't, what does Locke say? Then we have the right to do. Then we have the right to overthrow this regime and uh, banish Craig the Fourth from from our land, but uh, but not the real Craig because he's really awesome. So anyway, yeah. So so Locke's ideas, uh, of course, are very relevant to America, and 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 in some ways they're the ultimate establishment ideas. They're easily appropriated, of course, by the American revolutionaries of of seventeen seventy six. But these are the ideas that justify the existing regime after 1688. So in some ways, these are very radical. Um, but in other ways, these are the foundation of our identity as, as, as colonial British uh, Americans. There are other things that we have going for us that, that make America such a, a fertile uh, place for, for freedom to take root. Uh, as James Otis of Massachusetts explains, one of the most essential branches of English liberty is the freedom of one's house. A man's house is his castle. Now, I realize that this is gendered and everything and may sound a bit old-fashioned in its phrasing. But this, when you think about it, is really a a, a solid um, cornerstone of, of the world of freedom. If your house is your castle... What are you inside your house? You're the the queen or the king. And if you're the queen or the king inside your house, who is not the king or queen inside your house? The queen or king is not the queen or king inside your house. The government is not king inside your house. I mean, this distinction between stuff that is private and stuff that is public, this is a really, really meaningful distinction. I mean, without it, that's, that's the, the definition of totalitarianism. If the government controls everything and, and, and owns everything, property to be meaningful, you have exclusive use over it. And, and, and you could decide in your house what you want to do, what you want to do on your property, right? And, and, if, and if you quibble with your nature's use, of his or her property, you know, really, you're undermining your own rights to your property because if it becomes possible to tell your neighbor what to do, 
uh, in their house or on their land, then you're undermining uh, your rights to have control and liberty on your own. And, and, and this is one of the things, I think, that makes America, for the time, for the time, a relatively tolerant place. And, and, and the degree to which there's toleration in America um, is going to be expressed in various forms. Um, we, we know that there is, in different places, in different parts of colonial America, and, and, and varying somewhat by the times, different degrees of religious toleration. Um, but we have a relative degree of religious toleration, and that is especially true after the arrival in 1739 of George Whitfield and the beginning of uh, what people refer to as the Great Awakening. You see, uh, religion had been uh, established by all the colonial governments almost from the beginning. In New England, it was the Puritan church, was the established church. In, in the middle colonies and in the south, um, it was the, the Church of England. Um, the established church, people were required to attend. Sometimes those laws were enforced pretty rigorously, sometimes not. People were required through their taxes to pay uh, in support of, of these churches. Um, the ministers were, were paid at public expense. If you were a minister in this religious monopoly environment, you wouldn't know if you were doing a good job. There would be no competition to compare yourself to. I'm sure that the people who work at the Department of Motor Vehicles don't intend to uh, be inefficient <laughs> or surly. But, but really, do you have any options but to attend uh, to go to the DMV if you want a license or if you want a license plate. I mean, your other option is to, to learn to walk, right, or take the bus. There's no competition. In, in, in many respects, before the Great Awakening, churches in America were much more like the Department of Motor Vehicles than they were some competitive business like a bank. Even the small little town outside of West Point, Highland Falls, they're like five or six little banks. If you don't like the, the attention you receive, if you think the lines are too long, if you think the, the customer service is poor, in one bank you could withdraw your money and just take it to the next bank. They compete, right? And so they're very nice. We have religious competition after the Great Awakening. George Whitfield arrives. He's dynamic. He is a, an incredible speaker. He... he makes his sermons relevant to the lives of people. He, he uses reason as well as emotion. People treat him like a rock star. He goes to Boston at the time, a town of 15,000 people, 20,000 people. So people from surrounding communities too show up on Boston Common to hear him preach. He gives, he gives a sermon in the uh, Old South Church building. People pack into this, this building. Finally, when a sermon is done, finally, when the crowd begins to recede, three bodies fall from the walls against which they'd been pressed to death. People would, would treat him like a, like a rock star. Wherever he went, it was like God stock or God a palooza or God a roo. Um, people would try to get like little uh, pieces of his, his clerical vestments. Everyone felt like he, he wasn't just speaking to the crowd. He was speaking directly to them, in part, perhaps, because he was famously cross-eyed. <laughs> but, but wherever he went, on, on that day, the, the government-controlled church would be empty. And, you know, he's important theologically, but I think he's, he's important also because um, he inspires a lot of religious innovation in America. And we begin to see the rise, not only of the uh, established churches, 
but we begin to see the rise of Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians. And, and where before on Main Street in any town or community in America, there would probably just be one church. Now there might be two or three or four. And there's a religious marketplace and there's religious competition. And this is really important. Um, and it's important from the standpoint of tolerating one another. It's important also from another vantage point. It had been that the church was connected with the government. Now, if you're a member of one of these new insurgent faiths, if you're a Baptist, or if you're a Methodist, if you're a Presbyterian, whether you live in the South or the Middle Colonies or New England, you think that the government is wrong about religion, right? The government doesn't support your church. It supports some other church. You think the government is wrong about religion. You think that the government is wrong about God. If the government could be wrong about God, could the government be wrong about taxes? Could it be wrong about trade policy? I mean, if the government could be wrong about God, the government could be wrong about, about anything. The government could be wrong about everything. So the Great Awakening helps to unleash forces that uh, I think are inherently anti-establishment. Now, that's not to say that people um, in the middle of the 18th century were against the British monarchy. I mean, if anything, uh, George III, when, when he's coronated during the French and Indian War, is a hero to people in America. I mean, he was the, the, the leader of the freest nation on the planet. He was a wartime leader. He, he was a man who was carrying us to victory against the French and their Native American allies. He, he was the man who stood up for our liberty. Everybody loved him with the possible exception of Dalmatians. <laughs> the French and Indian War, I teach at West Point, so obviously I'm an expert in military history. The French and Indian War can be summed up thus. Uh, there were red arrows, there were blue arrows, there were red explosions, and there were blue explosions. And we won! We won the French and Indian War. The, uh, the French were defeated. The French vacated uh, the North American continent. But, of course, their Native American allies remained. And the British had to face two facts. One, during the course of the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, as it was known globally, Britain's debt doubled. In addition, in addition, these Native Americans still possessed the capacity to wage war against the British colonists whose population doubles every 20 years. There's a good amount of pressure for people to expand westward. The British want us to resist it. They impose the proclamation line of 1763. The year that this war ends, this is designed to make good neighbors by establishing a good metaphorical fence between the Native Americans and the English colonists. The, the English colonists were not to cross this line. The land west of the proclamation line, which basically followed the crest of the Appalachian Mountains, was reserved for Native Americans. The, uh, the result was that a lot of backcountry settlers were outraged. They'd fought in this war. They'd, they'd, they'd seen the, the Indians as their real enemies. They had lost homes. They'd lost crops that had been cut down. They'd lost uh, fathers. They'd lost sons. They'd lost brothers. They'd lost husbands. They'd lost limbs. 
in, in the French and Indian War, and now the British government, the victorious government, their government was siding with their enemy? These people thought this was an outrage. Restricting their liberty, isn't that what government's supposed to protect? Their liberty to move onto what is now undisputed British soil. Britain claims all the land up to the Mississippi. This, this really seemed wrong. And, and, and then, of course, we come to 1765 and the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act. The British almost could not have constructed a more odious or onerous tax. This stamp, this physical stamp, was affixed to all sorts of different paper products. And, and it's almost as if the British were trying, and they weren't, but it's almost as if they were trying to alienate almost all the important occupational groups of, of, uh, among the colonists. You know, uh, it's like, let's get the press against us and mandate that the stamp has to be affixed on newspapers. Um, let's get, you know, the, the lawyers seem to be overrepresented in colonial houses of assembly. Let's mandate that all legal documents have to bear the stamp. I mean, that means that it's more expensive to buy a newspaper. It's more expensive to, to hire a lawyer. We understand what that means. There's going to be less work for lawyers. There's going to be less, fewer newspapers sold. The British uh, mandate that the stamp is going to go on Bibles. Uh, new Bibles have to bear the stamp. And, and, and this alienates the clergy, who ever since the Great Awakening have become more influential than ever. And, and, and to not leave anyone out, the British insist on uh, packages of cards and dice have to bear the stamp. And this ensures that uh, drunken, rowdy mobs of people from taverns will uh, rise up and protest the Stamp Act and petition and, uh, you know, tar and feather uh, in effigy stamp tax collectors to shun people who collaborate with the British government, to form committees of correspondence, to start up a new organization called the Sons of Liberty, um, to meet together, uh, to, to, to complain about the Stamp Act, to unite this group of diverse and divided colonies are finally finding common cause, and they are uniting again, as they had done in the Seven Years' War, this time, though, not with the British, this time against the British, who they say are violating their property rights. It's not just that this is a tax. It, it, it's that this tax, this tax is something to which we didn't consent. It's one thing if, if our own local colonial assemblies impose a tax. They're accountable to us. We elect them. But this parliament, we have no representation in this parliament. And this parliament is taking our money without asking. And I know we live in, you know, morally relativistic times, but what do we call it when someone takes money out of our pocket without asking? Stealing. It's stealing, right? Someone said government. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's stealing. And stealing is something that government is supposed to protect us against. And yet, in this instance, the government is the thief. Well, finally, the British, they, in 1766, they repealed the Stamp Act. But then a year later, they passed the Townsend Duties, a new series of taxes. These on lead, glass, paint, paper, tea. Again, we unite. Again, we protest. Again, we boycott. Again, we petition. And again, the British decide that they're going to repeal this tax. And it's really kind of interesting when you think about it. I mean, they're conditioning us to resist. They're rewarding us for what they would consider to be our bad behavior 
Um, it's almost like they're, they're egging us on. And, uh, and on a day that, that they hope, you know, the, the, the day of the repeal of the Townsend duties, a day that they hope will sort of long live in the history of um, Anglo-American friendship, something else happens, something else that they don't anticipate, something else um, for which I think it's not fair to hold the British responsible. But it's something else that causes Americans to think that the British government is, is, is now very much a threat to America's freedoms. And, and, and this event takes place on March 5th, 1770. And uh, it begins outside a building that is the biggest target in all of Boston. And if I were like a British soldier in Boston, and you know, they would nowadays they'd be called peacekeeping troops, right? But if I were a British peacekeeper outside, of, this is the last building I would want to have to stand guard in front of. Because what's the building? Who works inside? Armory. Good guess. It's a customs house, all right? It's where the, the, the taxes are collected. So here in the customs house, outside the customs house, you have a British uh, soldier standing guard. And there are these little kids in the street, and it's kind of a cold night. It's March. It's early March. There's snow on the ground, kind of icy conditions, cold, gets dark early. Um, these little kids, these little uh, rascallions start throwing snowballs at the soldier, and quickly that, that escalates into um, bits of ice and sticks and stones and even words that no doubt hurt him. And... <laughs> And what does he do? He calls, he calls for some help. He calls for reinforcements. And, and more British troops come on out. And they've got their backs against this wall, the wall of this building. And the crowd begins to grow. People are saying, what's going on? What's taking place here? And then, for reasons that we do not know, all of the church bells in Boston began to ring. This is a Monday night. What are all the church bells ringing for? What would that normally be a signal of? <laughs> Some sort of public emergency, right? And, and, and what, in this era of wood construction, would be the most horrifying public emergency you could imagine? Fire. Fire, right? So people come out of their houses with buckets of water, and, and, and they, the, the crowd sort of descends in the center of town and in the customs house. And these poor British peacekeepers, right, they're standing there, their backs against the wall, the crowd in front of them, they have their bayonets fixed, they're trying to keep this crowd at bay. We have uh, people in the back of the crowd sort of pushing forward, but if you're in the front and the bayonet is, is pointed right at your chest, do you want to go forward? You want to go back. So they push back, and in this revolutionary mosh pit, you have chaos, you have pandemonium, lots of people are shouting, it's dark, there's confusion, the bells are ringing. The bells could be a sign of what? Someone yells, and one of the British soldiers does, and then all the others do, and then you have 11 bloody bodies on the ground five of whom will die. And this is the Boston Massacre. Now, Paul Revere's engraving is not quite accurate, is it? He has the crowd with its backs against the wall. He has Captain Preston raising his sword and giving the command to fire. Mark, you'll be outraged. Not even the dog. The dog is caught in the crossfire. It's, it's, it's terrible. But here we think that the British... Right? Not only are they taking away our property, not only are they restricting our liberty, they sent troops here and they're taking away our lives. All the things that the government is supposed to exist to do. Government's violating these rights. 
that it should be protecting. Fast forward to uh, 1773. Um, the Boston Tea Party, tea is taxed, um, and people have been boycotting it. But the British think they could break our will. The British think that they could convince Americans to, to buy this taxed tea. It had been a point of principle that we wouldn't buy anything that had been taxed without our consent. But the British say, aha, uh-huh. we know these Americans. They're British at heart. They love their tea. We will subsidize this tea. There will still be a tax on it, but it will be so low cost. It will be less expensive than the black market tea that they drink. It will be less expensive than the, that herbal tree that they've been making do with. And the leaders of the Sons of Liberty in Boston are worried. Right? They're worried that, that maybe the British are on to something. Maybe we won't have, this brings us to last night, the willpower right, to resist this tea. Our hands were trembling. All the people of Boston got together. A meeting was convened. When Sam Adams at the end said, I, I, I regret that there's, there's nothing that we could do to save our country. It was almost like that was a, a, a predetermined signal. People rose up from their seats. They, they quickly went home. Men took off their shirts. They, they smeared uh, paint or, or charcoal on their chest. They put feathers in their hair to sort of half dress up as Mohawk Indians. They descended upon Griffin's Wharf. They board three ships the uh, Dartmouth, the Beaver, and the Eleanor, and they dump into Boston Harbor 90,000 pounds in terms of weight, 90,000 pounds of tea. The British, who previously had responded to American protests by repealing unpopular laws, by giving in, well, what do they do now? They go overboard, and they pass what they call the Coercive Acts. That's what they call them. We call them the Intolerable Acts. The Intolerable Acts of 1774 shut down Boston Harbor. They, they make it illegal um, for the Massachusetts Assembly to meet. Even, even town meetings in, in, in Massachusetts are banned. People in Massachusetts begin to say, they're not treating us like Englishmen. What are they treating us like? So, some people say they're beginning to treat us like slaves. John Adams has a, has a quote uh, from this time period. He, he says, we won't be their Negroes. In other words, we won't, treat, uh, we won't be treated as poorly as we treat people of African descent here in America. Others, though, say they're not treating us like Englishmen. Do you know what they're treating us like? Irishmen. <laughs> like a conquered people who, who, who can't represent themselves, who can't make laws under which they live. By, by this point, 1774, Patrick Henry says, we are in a state of nature. It, 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 this is really interesting. You know, we, we, we usually think of the United States declaring independence from Britain. That's sort of how it happened. But in, in, in some ways, you could imagine from the perspective of 1774, it was almost as if Great Britain had declared uh, America independent. Because it's no longer acting like the government. If the government's job is to protect life and protect liberty and protect property rights, certainly this British government is not fulfilling those functions. The British government is, 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 is itself endangering, threatening, violating our rights to life and liberty and property. The British government isn't a government. The British government is the barbarian. The British government is Mark. Right? 
And, uh, and the British government would show itself to be such in April of 1775, when troops march out through Lexington to Concord to take our, our, our weapons and ammunition to leave us defenseless. That's the beginning of the war for independence. Now, Randy uh, talked to us a lot about the, uh, the Declaration of Independence. Um, he's going to talk to us a lot tomorrow about the Constitution. What, what I'd like to talk about is a little bit, well, what unfolds after the war for independence? What unfolds after um, this new Constitution is ratified in place of the old Articles of Confederation? How, how does American history evolve? How does this nation that is conceived in liberty, that is dedicated to these you know, fundamental principles, that, that, that does have a birth certificate, the Declaration, which announces twin tests of legitimacy, right? The first being the preservation of rights. That's government's job. That's, that's its goal. That's, its, that's the ends. And what are the means? The consent of the governed. How well does this bold new experiment in liberty work? How free will the American people remain? I should note, too, that this bold experiment in liberty, um, even uh, from the vantage point of 1776, is, is one that is extraordinarily fraught with danger. I mean, you think about what these people were up to. You think what, what they were about to undertake. This is a war for liberty. I mean, the American Revolution, a war to make us more free. They were very well aware that the vast majority of wars do not end up increasing the amount of freedom. The vast majority of wars increase not only deaths, but debts and taxes and, and undermine civil liberties. I mean, a war for liberty is a very uh, unlikely thing. Can we thread the needle? Can, can, can we achieve what... Uh, Cromwell didn't achieve. I mean, Cromwell is supposedly fighting for, for freedom in England, but he ends up, gets rid of the monarchy, but he becomes a Lord Protector, right? Flash forward a little bit. You know, the, the French Revolution, it's supposed to be about going from tyranny to freedom, right? But instead, what really happens is, is you go from, from King Louis to uh, the reign of terror and some beheadings to Emperor Napoleon, Will our revolution be different than the traditional pattern? I mean, it turns out that it is. It turns out that not only is American independence recognized, but that George Washington recognizes the importance of the supremacy of civilian control over the military. That George Washington, at the end of the war, goes down to Annapolis, where the Continental Congress was in session, tenders his sword, resigns his commission, returns as a private citizen to Mount Vernon. King George III supposedly had been informed before this had happened that these were George Washington's plans. And supposedly, according to this story, George III couldn't believe it. He scoffed. He laughed. He said, ha, huh, if he does that, then truly he is the world's greatest man. And that's exactly what George Washington did. So this revolution for liberty against all odds 
has, has begun to bear some fruit. And, and after the ratification of the new constitution in 1787, um, we have the beginnings of national government in the United States. George Washington reluctantly comes out of retirement to preside over the, the constitutional convention. Um, again, he reluctantly agrees to serve as the first president of the United States. He will, uh, in a very prescient manner, after two terms, decide to set the precedent of resigning, of not seeking a third term. And it's a great precedent that he set, because had he listened to the many people who were urging him, please, to, to, to remain in office for a third term, the precedent that he would have set would be that the president died in office, served for life. Because, of course, George Washington would die in 1799. Now, the reason that so many people were eager to, to keep George Washington in office was because he was one of the few things, one of the few symbols holding America together. The 1790s proved to be an incredibly divisive time. You, you have here, underneath the portrait of George Washington, portraits of, of, of Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, and then of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Of course, Hamilton and Adams would, would form a political alliance known as the Federalists. Jefferson and Madison would form a political alliance known as the Republicans. I like these names, by the way. I mean, we think politics are dirty now. They were really dirty back then, too. Um, by calling themselves Federalists, Hamilton was trying to imply that his group was identical to the Federalists of the 1780s, the people who supported ratification of the Constitution. And therefore, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams are anti-Federalists, opposed to the Constitution. Now, we know that's not true. Who was James Madison? What was James Madison? Yeah, he's the father of the Constitution. So Madison and, and, and Jefferson said, well, fine, if you're going to play that game, we, we'll one-up you. We're going to call ourselves Republicans. If they're Republicans and Hamilton is not a Republican, then what must Hamilton be? A monarchist, right? And, and this is just a taste of, of how vicious politics were during this period of time. The divisions were deep, they were personal, they were also ideological. And, 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 and at play was, uh, what do we make of this Constitution? How should we interpret this Constitution? Do we read it like a license? Or do we read it like a restraining order? You know? Do we, do we read it and, and abide by the letter of the, of the law, exactly what it says? Or is there a little bit of room for interpretation? Hamilton, of course, believed that there was some room for interpretation, that you could read between the lines of the Constitution and find implied powers, things that, that the government wasn't prohibited from doing, and, and so it's kind of reasonable, given the, the specified powers, that the government maybe should be able to do certain things. And one of those things, Hamilton thought, was a national bank. James Madison, of course, uh, disagreed with Alexander Hamilton. Madison said he was really beside himself because Madison and Hamilton had really been good friends. And, 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 and yet now Madison feels betrayed. He and Hamilton had both been at the Constitutional Convention. They had both heard the idea of a national bank be raised. 
they both understood that it was discussed and they both understood that it was explicitly rejected and not included in the Constitution. So for Hamilton now to say that it's an implied power, Madison thinks, you know, Alexander Hamilton is a, a very, very bad man. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hamilton, uh, he has his own thoughts about Madison. He doesn't think he's changed. He thinks Madison's the one who's changed. And, you know, he and Madison had been great friends during the period of ratification. And it's almost like they were in junior high school or something. Uh, you know, they'd been off at camp. It was the summertime. Um, you know, they, they made uh, nice little, like, friendship bracelets for each other. They were always hanging out, you know, totally inseparable. Then the summer ended. The school year began. They go back to their, their middle school. And who does Madison only sit with at lunchtime now? He doesn't sit with Hamilton anymore. Who does he sit with? Jefferson, right? And Hamilton, I mean, he really essentially writes this in a 1792 letter that he sends to a, a friend named Edward Carrington. Um, so this is a personal dispute as well as a political one. Um, and the personalities involved are, are, are very much uh, ones that oftentimes have a, a shared history. Um, for example, in the 1796 election and then again in the 1800 election, who will be pitted against each other but Adams and Jefferson? I mean, Adams and Jefferson were, were, were the, the dynamic duo of, of the Declaration of Independence. You know, I mean, they were the Batman and Robin of the Continental Congress. Uh, Jefferson was the, the pen of independence. Adams was um, the mouth of independence. You know, vociferously and repeatedly called for independence on the floor of the Continental Congress. And, and yet now, they're divided by, by politics. Now they're advanced in, in both 1796 and 1800 as, as their um, factions, respective candidates for the presidency. And these are dirty, you know, downright awful, uh, slam-down campaigns. What, what happens first in 1796 is that Jefferson comes in second. By the rules of the Constitution at the time, that means he's John Adams's vice president. John Adams doesn't uh, do much beyond make a, a few moves early on in his new presidency to include Jefferson as part of his administration. I think Jefferson was pretty much fine with that, and he didn't want to, you know, be complicit in what he feared Adams might do as president. He bided his time and waited in the United States Senate, over which he presided. In 1800, there's another matchup. And, and, and by this point, we have had a quasi-war with France. It's called the quasi-war because it's never a declared war. But it is a conflict, and it is taking place in the high seas. And Adams, I think, in many respects to his great credit, uh, does his very best to avoid going to war with France. He worries that if we go to war with France, we, we, we might lose our independence. Either we would lose our independence because we would lose to France, and, and, and France would either uh, become our, our, uh, you know, our, our puppeteer, or we would lose our independence because if we went to war with France, we'd have to um, ally ourselves too closely with the British and we'd become a British satellite again. He tries very hard to avoid war. A lot of people in his party think he's, uh, he's, he's in error for doing so. They want war. They know that a war with France 
the nation with which Jeffersonian Republicans are associated would devastate them politically in 1800. It would guarantee Adams's reelection. And, 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 and yet Adams tries to stave off war and almost as a bone to throw to the Federalist dog, uh, Adams agrees to sign into law the Alien and Sedition Acts, right? Which are war preparation um, legislation designed to make it easier to uh, you know, eject from America um, enemy aliens, um, but also to clamp down on, on, on speech that people consider seditious. It became against the law to criticize the government or its officers, to hold them in public contempt or mockery. And, and this, 1798, I mean, it's only seven years since the passage of the Bill of Rights. Madison had earlier worried that, that the Bill of Rights would be mere parchment barriers, that, that, that they might reassure people that they would have very little impact, very little effect at restraining ambition. Here, in this instance, it seems that, that he's right. I mean, you could, you could be for a broad interpretation of the Constitution, but, but where's the ambiguity in the First Amendment? I don't know, maybe it's ambiguous. It begins with, it's kind of a cloudy beginning. I don't know what it means. It begins, uh, Congress shall make no law. You know? And yet here's a law that Congress has made and that Adams has signed. Adams' decision later to sue for peace with the French, um, again, really is a, a virtuous decision. He, he describes it as the most uh, disinterested act of my life because it, it removes one of the best issues that he has to use against the Jeffersonian Republicans. In the election of 1800, this time's time, John Adams comes in third. Thomas Jefferson is tied for first with Aaron Burr. After 37 ballots are cast by the still Federalist-dominated House of Representatives, the Federalist House that had been elected in 1798, Jefferson is made president. Right? And it seems as if we're on the verge of a new era. Jefferson, on March 4th, 1801, raises his right hand, uh, you know, takes the oath of office. Then he sort of half whispers his inaugural address, but he had already provided it to the newspapers. It was already being circulated in print. Jefferson writes about all the great advantages that America enjoys. And then he asks, what more remains to close the circle of our felicities? One thing more, he says, a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This, Jefferson said, is the sum of good government. And Jefferson went to work trying to shrink the size of government. He repealed all internal taxes. Some of these taxes were so inefficient, in other words, it cost so much to pay the tax collectors that they really weren't a great source of revenue in the first place. He, he, he shrank uh, the size of the army and the navy. He introduced different measures to bring economy into government. During the course of Jefferson's two terms, he paid down one-third of the national debt that he had inherited from the administrations of George Washington and John Adams. 
So by many measures, Jefferson was a big success. And of course, people commonly point toward other things that were great achievements of Jefferson's presidency. And probably what people uh, turn to most of all, and most often, is the Louisiana Purchase. You know, the, the treaty arrives on July 3rd. It's announced to the public July 4th, 1803. Napoleon has agreed to sell for $15 million the entirety of Louisiana to the United States, three cents an acre. Jefferson thought this was in some respects too good to be true. This is amazing. I mean, this solves so many of our problems. This sets us up so well for the future. First of all, Jefferson, like Madison, very much wished that America could avoid the wars and the, and the tumult of Europe, that we could establish and, and maintain our neutrality, that we could avoid getting sucked into European conflicts. In the past, this land, Louisiana, um, had been held by Spain. That was bad enough, but at least Spain was an empire on the decline. Were it to be in the hands of France, Jefferson thought, we will, and this is Jefferson, we will have to marry ourselves, he writes, to the British fleet will drive us into the arms of the British. Because whoever possesses Louisiana, Jefferson said, is our habitual enemy. And uh, think about it, too. It's not like the British have vacated North America entirely. They control Canada. With France and Louisiana, with the fact that in the 18th century and now into the 19th century, it's almost a law of physics that British and France are going to be at war. Right? They're going to be marching troops through our territory. We'd be dragged into this. But if instead, if, if, we, if we go with this agreement, if we purchase Louisiana, it's almost as good as the, as the Atlantic Ocean, this big moat which separates us from the problems of Europe. This would be a land moat. It would allow us to maintain our peace, our diplomatic independence. Maybe even better yet, Jefferson thinks. It would allow Americans to maintain um, their, their virtue as, as family farmers. Still a lot of Americans work their own land. Jefferson wrote in his notes on the state of Virginia um, that, that those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God. Because he made them virtuous. Farmers are hardworking. They're independent economically. right? They work for themselves. They're their own bosses. They can provide for themselves and their families. This gives them an economic attitude, I'm sorry, an independent attitude. Right? They, 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 they don't take kindly to being bossed around. They stick up for their rights, Jefferson believes. And, and, and they're invested in their communities. Right? They're almost literally rooted in the soil. So this, for Jefferson, solves a big problem. Again, as I said, our population had been doubling every 20 years. The writings on the wall eventually will run out of land. But then, after the purchase of Louisiana, Jefferson writes, one time he writes, uh, it will provide us with land to farm for 100 generations. Another time, maybe after having a bit too much wine, uh, Jefferson writes, it will provide us with land to farm for 1,000 generations. It will preserve our character as a virtuous, independent people. But there was a problem. There was a problem with Louisiana. Jefferson understood this. The Constitution does not delegate a specific power to add territory 
to the United States of America. It does not provide the United States with that power. And Jefferson doesn't really know what to do. He thinks about it. He, he comes to a conclusion. Um, you know, in some ways, think about, would they want, would the Continental Congress, sorry, the Constitutional Convention, was there a reason why they wouldn't want to provide the power to add new territory? Was that an accidental oversight? Or was that intentional? And I, th I, I think there's some reason to believe that it would have been intentional. And the Constitution is, in, in some respects, a union of North and South. I've, I've, I've been married now for 13 years, right? Um, my wife, Christine, is, is awesome. Um, and I don't think she has this trick up her sleeve or this idea. Um, but what if I went back to the hotel tonight and she greeted me at the door? She had a big smile on her face. And she said, honey, I want you to meet our new husband, Julio. <laughs> I mean, in a way, adding Louisiana was, was like making the, the, the United States, which had been a marriage between North and South, now this weird sort of menage a trois with the West, right? <laughs> I mean, it does change the nature of things. It does change the balance of things. Will the future residents of Kansas be cod fishermen, like the people of Massachusetts? Or will they be farmers, like the people of Virginia? I mean, this, this matters. Jefferson resolves that he is going to solve this constitutional conundrum in the constitutional way. He's going to draft an amendment, and he does draft an amendment, an amendment that would specifically authorize the uh, purchase of Louisiana. But then, like, you know how, like, in the cartoons, sometimes they have the, the cartoon devil um, who appears on your shoulder, right? Well, a cartoon devil appears on, on Jefferson's shoulder. And the cartoon devil has a face. Whose face? Madison's face. And Madison says, don't do it. Don't go through with this constitutional amendment. You're crazy. I mean, first of all, France could withdraw from the, the, the agreement. All right? Second of all, so, so we don't want any delay. Second of all, Americans have been over, overjoyed with support of this. But, but third, if you delay, maybe the, the, the mood will shift Maybe, uh, maybe there will be resistance. Maybe we won't get the necessary three-quarters of the states to ratify it, right? This, this could all go, go under. Just, just buy it. Just buy the land. Allow the Senate to ratify the treaty. Have the House appropriate the funds. Sign it all. Let's make it a done deal. This is too important to let slip through our fingers. Did Madison recommend the right approach? Did Jefferson make the right call in accepting Madison's recommendation? It's difficult to say. But it is an instance where Thomas Jefferson, who had stood for holding the line against the uh, broad interpretation of the Constitution, Jefferson himself will indulge in it. Jefferson himself will set a precedent for, for, for not having full fidelity to the Constitution, to which he has sworn an oath. And there are other instances during Jefferson's presidency of him perhaps uh, excessively um, using federal powers. Constitution gives the Congress the right to regulate trade. Does it give it the right to regulate trade um, out of existence? 
as we did during the embargo of 1807 to 1809? I think that's constitutionally questionable. Again, Madison and his Treasury Secretary, Albert Gallatin, um, advised this. Not, not because they're anti-commerce, they're anti-war. We're, we're now being pulled toward war with Great Britain and France, both at the same time. Rather than, than, than choosing to go to war with one or the other or both, why don't we just retire from the rest of the world, withdraw our commerce, just trade amongst ourselves, avoid situations that would drag us into conflict? War was such a terrible thing, such a horrible thing, such a dangerous thing for our liberty, as much as the cessation of all international trade, which is what the embargo attempted to bring about. As terrible as that is, they thought that war was even worse. Did he make the right call? Now, one thing that, that comes out of the embargo is unintended consequences. Laws oftentimes have unintended consequences. Jefferson envisions the embargo uh, really solely as, uh, you know, commercial coercion, as, as pressure upon these nations. And yet what really comes out of the embargo is in some ways a kickstarting of an economic transformation that no doubt would have happened anyway, but perhaps would not have happened as quickly in exactly the way that it did. And I'm referring to the market revolution. You know, we relied mostly on, on, on Europe for manufactured goods. Now that manufactured goods aren't as easily obtainable or legally obtainable from, from Europe, American manufacturers will begin to manufacture more. The embargo is, it has disastrous consequences for certain elements of the economy, for shipping, for people who, who grow crops for export. But, but it works to the great advantage of upstart uh, manufacturers who now you know, don't have to compete with, with Europeans. We see with the advent of the marking re revolution, the market revolution, a, a whole bunch of different advan advan advantages and advances in manufacturing, in technology, in trade. I mean, one of the wonders that the market revolution brings about is uh, transportation is cheaper and faster. We have the Erie Canal, which was built between 1818 and 1825. It used to cost to transport goods along the route of the canal from Buffalo to Albany. Before the canal was there, it cost 19 cents a mile to ship a ton of goods. After the Erie Canal, three cents per mile, eventually one cent per mile. And the Erie Canal was five times faster than transportation on land. Just think about what that does to increase the geographical space within which people could trade. Just think what that does to allow for, for people to pursue their own comparative advantage and specialize in what they're particularly good at, the great efficiencies that this brings about. And it's not just uh, the Erie Canal or other canals. It's the steamboat. It's the railroad. I mean, all of these, these changes that are coming about. These changes are, are bewildering to men like Jefferson and John Adams. Um, old men by now, men who have uh, patched up their differences, who have resumed their correspondence, who have started to write letters to one another where they talk about um, all the, the, the things that you're not supposed to talk about, religion, politics, philosophy, history, um, the past. 
and the future. And they seem to realize that this world around them, this is changing in ways that they had not anticipated. Jefferson uh, quips in the beginning of 1826 that he feels as if he has one foot in the grave and the other uplifted to follow. By the middle of the spring, he'll write instructions for his tombstone and his epitaph. By the end of June, he's on his deathbed. And he's attended uh, by, by three men, and one, his grandson-in-law, Nicholas P. Trist, West Point dropout. Another one, uh, his grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph. And a third, a doctor at Jefferson's new University of Virginia named Dr. Rob Lee Dunglison. And uh, Jefferson has expressed that his last dying wish is to live to see the 4th of July, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of American Independence. And, and, and as, as the days pass, as Jefferson's strength dissipates, he'll, he'll ask the question. The night of July 1st, his eyes flutter open. He asks, is it the 4th? The men have to turn to him and say, no, no, not yet. On, on, on July 2nd, his eyes squint open. He asks in a, in a weak voice, is it the 4th? And they, again, have to disappoint him and say no. 11 p.m., July 3rd, 1826. Jefferson's eyes just crack barely open, and he asks, is it the 4th? And Nicholas Trist, who evidently had not spent enough time living under the West Point Honor Code, and who couldn't bear to let Jefferson down, lied to him and said, yes, it's the 4th. And historians have erroneously claimed that these were Jefferson's last words, is it the 4th? Because if you read Dr. Dunglison's notes um, of, of the proceedings of the day, he then offers to Jefferson another dose of what was believed to be life-sustaining medication. Jefferson turns to Dunglison and he says, no doctor, nothing more. So he's ready to go. And this would be a terrible story if he went right then, right there, July 4th, uh, or July 3rd, 1826. But his story doesn't end that way. It doesn't end that way at all. Because Jefferson lives. He lives for another 13 hours. He dies at noon on July 4th, 1826, 50 years to the hour after the Continental Congress had ratified the Declaration of Independence. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to anyone in Charlottesville, Virginia, up in Braintree, John Adams is on his deathbed. He dies at 5 p.m. on that day, 50 years to the hour after it had first been publicly proclaimed. John Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. Right? He had no idea that Jefferson had passed. I'd like to think that at that moment, Thomas Jefferson, you know, who was being lifted skyward on the wings of angels, was laughing his butt off because once again, he'd proven John Adams wrong. <laughs> I, I'd also like to think that in some respects, John Adams was, was right. You know, that Jefferson did survive, that the ideals of the American Revolution survive, that the ideals of, of, of the people of that time um, survive, the best ideals of that time. We understand that, that history, um, you know, is, 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 is something that changes rapidly. We understand that inventions like the cotton gin are gonna bring about a greater dependence on slavery, 
as well as a, a boon to the American economy. We understand that increasing economic diversity is going to make possible rent-seeking, special interests, seeking special favors. We understand that the tariff is going to be a big issue. Northern manufacturers love a high tariff, right? It, it insulates them from European competitors. Southern cotton growers hate it because there are retaliatory tariffs imposed upon what they sell to Europe. We, we have this dispute during the presidency of Andrew Jackson and the nullification crisis that pits Jeff Jackson against his vice president, his first vice president, John C. Calhoun. People always talk about the presidency uh, ravaging people and the, the before and after pictures are striking. This is very true also of the vice presidency. <laughs> we, have, we have increasing sectional tensions. Uh, the states of the West, are they going to be slave states or are they going to be free states? Are they going to be more like the North? Are they going to be more like the South? The, the, the party system under, of, of Jackson and the Democrats and the Whigs, it, it falls apart in the election of 1860. We have four competitors. Lincoln's not even on the ballot in 10 southern states. He, he only gets 40% of the popular vote, but he gets 60% of the electoral vote. Southerners can't stand this. They say it's like, like, like the, the, the Boston Tea Party. The tea has been thrown overboard. The revolution of 1800 has been initiated. Abraham Lincoln comes onto the scene, equivocates about what this, this, this war that begins, this civil war is really about. But Americans, they see the sacrifice, they see the bloodshed. It has to stand for something. It has to mean something. Captain Henry Howell says, every soldier knows he's fighting not only for his own liberty, but even more for the liberty of the whole human race for all time to come. More than 600,000 people die. Federal spending skyrockets. I mean, certainly... The Civil War, in many ways, um, is, is a validation of Madison's statement that of all the enemies of true liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other, the debts, the armings, the violations of civil liberties. And yet this war, this war, of course, achieves a greater degree of liberty for African Americans. Finally, slavery is repealed. And yet in the 20th century, we come up with new ways, new contrivances, to, to bind ourselves, to, to limit our choices. We have people like Frederick Wins Winslow Taylor developing theories of scientific management designed for factory floors but imposed in schools, used to condition people in, in various ways. You have uh, ideologies um, like socialism or imperialism. Um, you have people who call themselves progressives, uh, who, who, who basically look down on the ability of everyday people to make decisions for themselves and think that government should make those decisions for them. You have the rise of a cult of expertise, people with PhDs and advanced degrees who think they know better than, than people themselves. You have crises leading to the rise of Leviathan. You, you have things like the, the Great Depression leading to advances and increases in government spending and responsibility like the New Deal. You have additional wars, World War I, World War II, and, and, and then not even just wars, real wars, but, but, but made-up wars, like the war on, on poverty, justifying increased government action. You have uh, people imposing wage and price controls. You have a, 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 a people who are beginning to really distrust their government and its competence and its abilities. You have the rise of uh, a response to all this big government. You have people who uh, 
you know, turn to people like Ronald Reagan, who, who, who says government's not the solution, government's the problem. You have the foundation of, of groups like the Cato Institute, of the modern liberty movement. It's a hard road, right? It's a hard fight. Uh, liberty is, is something that's never easily won, especially when it seems that both parties conspire against it. But I want to leave you with one little story. And the story is this. Um, you know, you might know my, my uh, wife is here and my kids are, are, are with us. And it's kind of fun to go around, to, you know, take advantage of opportunities to see Washington, D.C. Or, or other, you know, interesting historic places. Uh, about six years ago, we were in Philadelphia. And we saw the Betsy Ross House. We saw Independence Hall. We saw the Liberty Bell. Um, and my son wanted to see the Liberty Bell most of all. We got in, it was like 6.55. The place closes at 7. We were like the last people in to see the Liberty Bell. And uh, my son at the time was three years old. Uh, you know, cute kid. I, I was impressed that he was interested in seeing the Liberty Bell because his main interest at that time was Bob the Builder. He loved Bob the Builder, <laughs> right? He had this Bob the Builder toolkit with a saw and a hammer and, uh, you know, all, all sorts of different things, a chainsaw in there, a drill. Um, so anyway, we go and we... Uh, we see the Liberty Bell, and the park ranger is standing there. Kind of a really nice guy. He hears that my son's name is Jefferson. And he says, wow, Jefferson, is that really your name? Yes. All right. So he's a park ranger at Independence National Historic Park. He loves that. Then we start talking about uh, the Liberty Bell. Then we start talking about Independence Hall. And we start comparing notes on some books we've read. And he finds out I'm a professor at West Point. So he's really warmed up to us. And he sort of leans forward with like the last people in there. He leans forward and he says, do you want me to let him touch the bell? Well, I had two thoughts. One was, is this how our national government takes care of our historical treasures? <laughs> and, and then I had another, heck yes. Yep. So Jefferson, Jefferson touched the bell. But, but afterwards, as we were leaving, he was muttering something. And I said, what is it? What is it, Jeff? And he said, it's, it's cracked, Daddy. It's cracked. And then he kind of straightened up and he said, I'll fix it. I'll fix it with my tools. Well, anyway, I just want to close uh, by saying thank you, and, and thank you especially right, for your interest in the, the, in the Cato Institute. Thank you especially for, for your interest in supporting this organization, which provides us with the tools that we need to preserve and protect and repair our liberty. I don't think there's anything uh, that's more important than that. Thanks again.